Hey there, listeners. You're listening to the Slavic Connection. Today, I have with us Alita Naylor. Alita is a journalist, author, and editor specializing on Russia and the Baltic states. Her work has appeared in numerous publications from The Guardian to Politico. Her newest book just came out in January. It is called The Shadow in the East, Vladimir Putin and the New Baltic Front. We talked about kind of the future of the Baltic states, her time in Russia, the geopolitics of, of really the entire region and how current events like the constitutional changes in Russia and COVID-19 are affecting things. So I think you'll really enjoy. You're listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Dear listeners, I am coming to you via Zoom. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. And I guess thank goodness for technology too, for permitting this to continue right, throughout the yeah. current crisis. Yeah. You, you live in the UK. What What's kind of the public sentiment or the panic level in the UK? I know that obviously the prime minister has it. Um, is, there, is there fear? Are people uh, afraid? Or is it more just precaution and um, solemnity? I think there are kind of a wide variety of reactions. I mean, in my immediate circle, there seems to be there seem to be quite quite low levels of panic. Um, mm-hmm. But there's kind of a quite strong, quite a strong degree of, I suppose, I suppose a morbid interest and curiosity right. in the <laughs> impact that it's going to have, like both positive and negative. Like, how is it going to affect uh, kind of space, how we work, how we relate to sick people? Um, economically i guess too so right. there are lots of very inquest- interesting questions that it's like kind of starting to bring up but right. i think on a wider scale that i'm seeing quite a lot of panic maybe like people aren't used to working from home people aren't people don't really know what's going to happen and right. yeah, yeah there's a lot of uncertainty i think i mean i think it's probably you know the same here mainly it's just the uncertainty most people aren't really afraid yet although we've seen all of the scary stuff but it's uh, there's just a lot of uncertainty to start i wanted to ask when did you get your first experience in in, in russia doing journalism Well, first experience in Russia and first experience in journalism, I guess, were two different okay. things. Because I moved there in 2011, I think, okay. to do my master's. I, I don't know if you know the European University at St. Petersburg. Oh, sure I do. Yes. I, I, yeah. I also went to, to did a year of university in St. Petersburg. So. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> when were you there? I was there in the fall of 2014, uh, okay. just as an undergraduate exchange student at the, well, it's it's the Smolny campus of St. Petersburg State University. Yeah, They weren't quite facing the removal of the ability to issue diplomas at that point then. No, they weren't. When I was there was when this whole, the whole saga was going on. And I actually met with the, the head of the European, right, the head of the European University. And he was talking about the most recent closure was because of fire code violations. Um, oh, yeah. presumably because of an inability to, to, to pay some bribe to, to, to the fire authorities. But on the other hand, maybe the whole fire code violations was just a top-down order to keep them closed. I mean, nobody really, I mean, it's all unclear. Was that a second occurrence of that? Because I know it happened once in the notice before I arrived because we had a party to kind of 
mark the anniversary of their reopening after the fire regulation breach. So did it happen twice? Oh gosh. I, well, so, I mean, I, he was telling me this probably in 20, 2017 or 2018 that conversation was. And he was saying that, that, that if I remember correctly, that that breach had happened, that, that, they're receiving that news had been re- fairly recent. So I, I was just wondering, do you know where that stands? There, there's still nowhere closer to having to European university being reopened, correct? I think it's been resolved now. Oh, it has. I, mean, okay. I was under the impression that um, the violation in 16 or 17, it was a very, very minor infraction. Okay. Okay. Something to do with like physics, physical education or sports regulation, not <laughs> yeah, having yeah, yeah. a ping pong table, <laughs> yeah, something yeah. equally ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And they had to move the campus out of the beautiful building they once had. But I think they've reopened now. I think I can check if you like. <laughs> and so that was your first experience in Russia? Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting. And St. Petersburg is kind of a beautiful place to experience Russia for the first time because it's kind sure. of Russia light, you know, it's like European yeah. Russia. <laughs> and what, what drew you initially to Russia? Was it your family history and story? I know that your, would you say your your grandmother or mother was from Estonia? My mother's side of the family is okay. from Estonia, yeah, through my grandmother. So she escaped on top of the train during World War II. Wow. Um, she spent some time at a displaced persons camp in Germany before coming to England. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so now I have kind of a family with Estonian roots, still in Estonia, still in Sweden, um, because there were people who left on boats to Sweden and in Canada and New Zealand, so all over the place. It's like a big global, I guess, Baltic diaspora. And so when you first arrived in Russia, did you expect that you would eventually be doing journalism there? And how did that kind of develop? Um, I wasn't really sure at that point, like I was mostly following my interests. So as undergraduate, I was studying history and I did a fairly long course on late imperial Russian literature with Daniel Beer. Then for my master's, I ended up focusing much more on contemporary politics and even, and I was auditing several classes as well as taking classes and ended up learning more about kind of contemporary governance and politics, Um, some oil industry stuff. Too. But then we had this course on Kazan. And I don't know if you know, do you know Marina McGilner? Can you say the, the last name again? McGilner. McGilner? No, I don't. University of Illinois at Chicago. Um, she was no, taking, a, she was hosting a course in Kazan. Okay. And I found that really interesting, kind of Tatarstan and Kazan's place inside Russia. Yeah. And ended up doing, adapting some of my university work for a newspaper that existed back then called the Kazan Herald. Wow. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that no longer exists either. So a lot's yeah. changed since then. <laughs> well, I assume were they closed because of was it was it an English language paper or was it closed because of uh, political pressure? It was an English language newspaper. Yeah, uh, the, they were the guy who ran it was also evicted from the country. I think. Oh, um, wow. <laughs> everywhere I've been has been kind of. <laughs> difficult history i suppose with the government well i mean I, I know that you know english language newspapers in russia have historically received well i guess you know in the more recent years have, have received a, a certain amount of pressure for, from the government and and so on yeah um, i'm sorry i'll have to look it up because his situation was i think he had to leave russia wow but the paper was already folding and by the time he had to leave wow Russia's, wow yeah 
then you finished your master's work and did you immediately come back to Russia because you wanted to cover, you know, events and developments going on or? Well, I never really left. So I did oh, some okay. teaching afterwards. And then I actually ended up doing some quote unquote interning. Okay. At, which I, <laughs> at the old Ria Novosti building. Sure. And then it was when I came back. So then after that, I left. And then I came back in 2013, and it okay. was then I started doing some work with the Moscow Times. So I just kind yeah, of followed so you, my you interest, I suppose. <laughs> so you, you came back in 2013. So you you were able to see these massive political transitions that took place in Russia because obviously 2011 was known for the Bolotnaya Polshid protests. Yeah. And then you know by 2014 we have Crimea and Ukraine. Uh, and you know what 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 was it did you what was it like to observe these massive kind of changes in the political atmosphere as an outsider? Did you feel that you were well attuned to the way that the kind of the direction of the country was changing because you know Russian people will tell me still today that uh, that you know twenty eleven was a turning point and then twenty fourteen was a turning point that they had never even expected. It was just a massive uh, change of the fate of the country? How did it seem to you at the time? I mean, it feels bizarre to describe having been there for such horrific events as lucky, but I kind of feel lucky to have been there in that time. Mm -hmm. um, but in 2011, I think I had much a much lower awareness of what was happening just because, I mean, the protests that I witnessed, they were the unsanctioned ones at least. A, this was St. Petersburg, so I didn't witness the Volodnaya protests like first right. time. But also I'd only been there for four or five months and it took a lot longer to really feel like I was starting to vaguely understand the country or developing, develop an understanding of it. But mm -hmm. these, I remember watching the protests, the unsanctioned protests outside Gostini Dvor and like seeing police like beating some peaceful protesters and just kind of trying to keep my distance so that I didn't get apprehended. Like, I was there, but I was telling myself I was there as an observer. Like, there was no way I was participating, you know, sure, I was just watching from the fringes. <laughs> so I was like, I just don't want to be in, like, the middle of this. I just wanted to watch it. Um, but right. I knew that something very strange was happening at that time. But I didn't really understand, I suppose, at that point, because I didn't know as much about Bolotnaya. With 2014, um, yeah, that was mad. And kind of difficult because I was doing some I was doing some work with like Russian government back, government back media at that point as well still, and so seeing the difference in kind of coverage between independent media and like Russian state media, wow. it was wild. That's, that's fascinating. <laughs> Absolutely wild, and the different narratives that we were kind of following in each direction, and then seeing the stories from soldiers' mothers and how there was a backlash. Yeah, like the, the soldiers' mothers, of course. Um, they helped to kind of constitute the story that there were Russian soldiers, in fact, fighting in Eastern Ukraine. Did that kind of enormous difference between what each side was saying, did that lead to you eventually leaving uh, those government-backed news sources? Or Yeah, ultimately, yes, when I could. Like, I wasn't happy. But I also spent some time in Ukraine, too, when wow. that was happening. And because I'd spent so much time kind of from a distance immersed in this, and I was like, I have to see what's going on there, too. And wow. I spent some time in Kiev. I think January 2014, before people started getting shot on the Yeah, side. yeah, absolutely. Um, and that that was just crazy. Like, it 
the smell. I remember the smell more than anything else, like wow. the burning plastic and the smell of music festivals. Yeah. Combined. <laughs> right, right, right. That, that's, un, that's unbelievable that you, you've been at the heart of so many of these kind of changes in the region. Well, before we move to the Baltics, let's, I'd like to kind of finish up with Russia. Yeah. What do you make of Putin changing the constitution and these constitutional changes that uh, we've seen recently? Uh, It was kind of reported that this whole idea, well, first in January, they rolled out these constitutional changes and the new government uh, in a bid to kind of increase Putin's popularity and obviously Medvedev became the eternal whipping boy who is just kind of blamed for anything <laughs> that has gone wrong in the past X number of years. And then Michelin was instituted and nobody knew where he came from. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Um, but he is, of course, the former head of the, of the tax service, it, which is a yeah. very kind of, I think, tacit uh, signal uh, to people that they're going to squeeze as much money out of them uh, as possible and kind of efficiency. But just when I, when I think of tax bureaucracy, I think of efficiency and, and, and things like that. So, I mean, you know, as somebody with such a breadth of experience kind of in the region and covering politics, uh, what, what do you make of it? And do you, do you, to what extent do you believe that the whole idea of Putin uh, nullifying his prior terms, which only came to light uh, in a session of the Duma uh, just this month. Uh, to what extent yeah. was that an, an improvisation? Well, that was a. I think that was quite a massive surprise for everybody because after all of the speculation in January about what was, what was going to happen next, you know, I think there was the idea that he was possibly going to set up a different external body that he would take charge of, and that would maybe kind of override the powers of the president. And then suddenly this happens. <laughs> I mean, it's it's Russia and Putin being unpredictable. And I think they kind of like it that way because it allows them this kind of pragmatism, this flexibility to make these kind of snap changes. And especially now with COVID-19, like, is, there, is the vote on April the 22nd still going to happen? I don't know. No, it, 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 was, it was officially postponed. Yeah, it's not going to yeah, happen. So, I mean, that's going to change everything too. So... I mean, I, I hate speculating like yeah. on what's going to happen in the future on a normal day, and this is a far from normal situation. Sure, and and what we do know is that the government didn't expect, you know, nobody necessarily expected COVID nineteen, and yeah. so it's really kind of a rain on his parade because I mean, both figuratively and literally, because they wanted to uh, have the goal, the 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 voting for approving the constitution on April 22nd. And then obviously the May Day parade and and the victory parade would be uh, in the beginning of May. So there was this idea that, you know, by making these events so close together, it would be this whole unity uh, push and be very important for his support. But now, exactly. um, now it's all gonna get moved. Um, but to, to their liking, there's not going to be any protests on the streets because under n- normal circumstances, we probably would have expected some street protests, but it, it doesn't look like that can happen because everybody's in quarantine. So there are probably uh, good and bad sides for, for the government. Yeah. And I think just like just before we started talking, there were some images cropping up on Twitter. Dennis Pratsenko, who was, let's have a look. 
head doctor for Russia's main coronavirus hospital. Oh yes, I saw um, that. Shaking Putin's hand. So. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. He he toured Putin through the 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 coronavirus uh, hospital in, in Moscow. And now he's tested positive. So yes. Um, yeah. So who knows? Putin could very easily have it, and yeah, I think a lot. You know, a lot of world leaders are getting it. So when I, I did see that two other administration officials had tested positive, yeah. and I don't know if you saw, but uh, Dmitry Peskov, P- Putin's press secretary, gave a very peculiar interview a few days ago where he seemed almost kind of depressed when he was talking about the fact that two administration officials had tested positive, and so that led to a lot of spe- speculation. It led to a lot of speculation that for him to have that kind of tone, it led to a lot of speculation that maybe it's more than two people. Maybe it's Putin himself, you know, things like that. Yeah. But I mean, Uh, high level officials do have access to A, testing and B, greater medical resources than the wider population. So the the other thing that I did. Prince Charles recovered quickly in his vulnerable population, isn't he? Right. And to that end, I did see that um, the media personality, Ksenia Sabchak, yeah. uh, actually got it way back in December. And she just admitted it uh, uh, today, or yeah, I guess today, uh, to people's surprise. And she said, oh, I was deathly sick way back in, in the end of December, but I got better. And I, I found it was coronavirus, but I kept it secret. And so if there's all kinds of you know so-called secret cases of coronavirus, yeah. then that definitely means that a lot of the official numbers are deflated and I don't think that they're going, they're, they're, you know, doing reverse, uh, reverse accounting for cases and so on and so forth. But yeah, I mean, I could, I haven't been tested. Most people <laughs> I know haven't been tested. Like right, right. we could all be secret carriers without realizing. Um, and <laughs> Absolutely. So, I mean, what, what do you think the Baltics think about Putin changing the constitution and staying in power? Do you think that they have a, a kind of a, a particular reaction to that news? I'm not actually sure on that front. Possibly okay. not a very happy outlook there. Mm-hmm. They're kind of overwhelmed with some other things at the moment to really be looking right. too closely around Right, it. and I, I did um, want to ask, do you, do you know anything about the Baltic's corona response? Oh, gosh. Um, I think Latvia's postponed its youth song and dance festival until next year um i think there's been a few bans on gathering in public places um there have been some deaths i think possibly the highest number of deaths have been in estonia and then lithuania i don't think latvia's had any deaths yet mm-hmm. but they're, they're mostly like closing their borders basically and that's been quite difficult for people, A, outside of the country to get back and B, moving between the two countries. Mm-hmm. The three countries, sorry. <laughs> Let's talk about your book a little bit. Again, I'll, I'll, I'll remind our listeners that, uh, I'm going to pull up the full title. I'll remind our viewers that the full title is The Shadow in the East, Vladimir Putin and the New Baltic. And mm-hmm. in the in the tagline, you you pose an interesting question about uh, how how real are the 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 fears of of the Russians uh, in in the Baltic states in Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. And so I guess I'd kind of like just to pose uh, the question that you pose in, in the tagline: uh, how how real are the fears, and what exactly are the fears? that are of, of Russia in the Baltic states? I think primarily 
was the fear of invasion after Crimea and Eastern Ukraine right. from the East in 2014 and everything and the years that followed, maybe. But I don't know if that's necessarily the case anymore. So the fears, I suppose, would have been direct overground invasion because it looked to the rest of the world, I suppose, and especially to to countries on Russia's borders that they could seize territory or annex territory with impunity and with very and to very little international reaction. And two other former Soviet republics, then that was incredibly nerve-wracking. And maybe people did start to overestimate what Russia would do in that time, but maybe it was a reasonable fear because Russia was getting the international response that it could do it without too much too many international repercussions. Um, I think since then, the fears have subsided slightly. Uh, that could be partially to do with the war in Ukraine kind of being prolonged for as long as it has. I think maybe they expected a much quicker result in Russia um, or in, quote unquote, the DNR and LNR. <laughs> um, and also in Syria too. So these are two like pretty expensive, pretty difficult pretty lengthy conflicts that Russia is basically involved with. And to start another one at any time soon, it would be very difficult for them. Yeah. And, and, with a, <laughs> and with a NATO member, it would be a lot difficult to pull off quickly. So Exactly. And that's like, that's a big difference, obviously, too. Like the fact that all three Baltic states do have NATO membership. But then people started to call into question, like, would NATO come to their help too? Like, especially after Donald Trump's Ascension to the presidency. We nobody knew like whether Trump would continue to be a NATO supporter. You know, he was insistent that the countries put in their two percent of spending, defense spending. Um, and the Baltics have done that. They've met those targets since then. Other countries haven't. Many other countries haven't. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, they've done everything they can. I think to kind of prevent that. And, and now and the so, problem is sorry. And so the the, the fear. The fear then really was a, a military, a very kind of hard power uh, move. Uh, that's interesting. I was wondering if you could kind of play out a little bit how the people in the Baltics imagine that taking place. It would, it, I you know, I can imagine that it would be something like uh, uh, mobilizing Russian language speakers in those countries in certain border. Uh, regions of those states to to rise to rise up, maybe try to acquire arms to start like a localized rebellion. After which, Russian military forces would very quickly intervene in the name of these Russian speakers. Is it something like that? How I mean, how how did they see this playing out potentially? I think that's basically what they envisage because that with that you have plausible deniability. You know, does NATO need to get involved if it's a domestic threat rather than a foreign threat? Right. So if the, I mean, if some local actors, not necessarily entirely, um, I suppose, native Russians, were mobilized to act on behalf of Russia or had some pro-Putin or anti. I suppose, Baltic government sent sentiments, then they could be encouraged to maybe start a quote-unquote organic uprising. And mm -hmm. then, of course, you know, they might seek external support. And there are native Balts who um, 
who are pro-Putin. Like I, I remember speaking to one man in Lusnamai, which is a, like a largely Russian-speaking uh, district of Tallinn. Um, and yeah, he he had so much resentment towards the Estonian government and so much pro-Putin sympathy, even though he was Estonian, just because of like his own perceived and very real actually too, um, socio-economic subjugation. And so, you know, they could, there's like the possibility of playing on that kind of anger too, maybe that existed. That's very interesting because he's right. He's not an ethnic Russian. Do you feel that yeah. he was the subject of, uh, of certain targeted information campaigns to kind of sway is are those those kinds of opinions because I know we know all about how they target obviously Russian language speakers in in the near abroad but do they also target you know ethnically Estonian for example and uh, Estonian speaking peoples and also have a narrative tailor made for them to kind of sway them towards a more pro Putin pro Russian uh, position. Um, I don't know how much they can be convinced. I mean, it's, it's a hard question. Like, even if they exist, the extent to which a they're on any of the security services' radars, mm-hmm. um, that's questionable. And b, like, how much trust they'd place in somebody who is not Russian or native Russian. Right. But there was a case, I believe, of a very young, um, of a young Estonian who was acting as a Russian spy, possibly. Yeah, there was an Estonian army officer, Denis Metsavis, who was sentenced to 15 years in prison for handing secrets to Russia. Yeah, I think I remember hearing about this case. Yeah, That was his name. Sorry, I forgot his name. <laughs> yeah. So uh, at a nightclub in Smolensk, he met an attractive woman, spent a night with her in the nightclub in Sauna. Um, spent the night with had claimed that he had raped her. He could face up to 15 years in a Russian prison if convicted. They warned him and they told him to follow them to the police station. So they can blackmail people into maybe espionage too. I, I did. I did want to ask really quickly. Your so your name is uh, Alid. Am I saying that correctly? I think it's Alida, um, Alida, or at least that's the Estonian pronunciation, oh, which okay. I learned <laughs> when okay. my Estonian teacher corrected me for mispronouncing my name. Oh, <laughs> wow. Okay. Okay. Well, then, yeah, I think we, we can just, yeah, this is great material. We can slip it into the podcast um, anywhere. <laughs> so I did read your piece about the kind of the rise of the, the far right in the okay. Baltics, in Estonia in particular. It, it always puts them in a funny position because on the one hand, they admire a lot of things about Putin and his regime and uh, kind of his ideology. But on the one hand, they're supposed to be, uh, you know, anti-Russian. So how do they kind of resolve within the far, you know, within the far right communities of the Baltic states, how do they resolve that tension where a lot of their um, ideological fellow travelers, like from Marine Le Pen to, the alternative for Deutschland in Germany. How do they resolve that tension where a lot of the parties that they kind of model themselves on are very pro-Russian, but they themselves can cannot be perceived to be pro-Russian? I don't know if they really do resolve it. Like it's a very strange sticking point because Ikra and the other far right parties, then they they share some sentiment, of course, with Putin's government. Like they're they're quite. Uh, 
let's say traditionalists. <laughs> I mean, it depends on the members that you speak to too. Like some of them have been openly racist, some of them have been openly misogynistic, but some of them are some of the voters are kind of more flexible and kind of go between the far right parties and more kind of centre right centre right conservative parties, depending on I guess the general feelings towards the government that preceded. Yeah, like there are different kinds of votes, I think, is essentially what I'm trying to get yeah. at. Um, um, and some of them are openly racist and some of them are going to be pro-Putin too. Um, yeah, they sorry. Do you, do you see the those parties gaining popularity in the Baltic states? And if so, does that mean that there's also pro-Russian sentiment gaining ground in the Baltic states? No, I think... I mean, I do see them gaining popularity, but I don't think that means that pro-Russian sentiment is gaining ground. Okay. Um, they have like a very regional, very localist appeal, and the localities to which they're appealing, it's more they're kind of massaging the fear of immigration coming in from Europe, like migrants coming in and being put into their communities that they don't they don't want to be disrupted, um, and the idea of kind of a bureaucratic EU structure that's trying to make the countries do it's basically like an against something rather than a pro something, I guess, mm-hmm. their vote for and the other far right parties. So no, I wouldn't say it indicates any kind of move towards Putin. It just indicates a move towards localism, traditional values, conservatism um, instead. Okay. So did you live in Estonia or, or Tallinn for any extended period of time? So I first went to Estonia in 2008. I wouldn't okay. say I've lived there for an- I mean, to find an extended period for the book, I was there. <laughs> I've been back and forth, you know, okay. a lot. I asked just because you, you know, kind of the um, the the image of, for example, Estonia in the United States, and I think a lot of, of the West is this whole association with uh, e-government and how uh, efficient you can pay your taxes online yeah. uh, through a, a secure system. And it's something that's just cel- you know, celebrated amongst certain political actors. And, oh, why can't we be like Estonia? Uh, is, it, is all of the, the government online e-services, do they work that well? And can they, should it be, if you have any experience with those systems, should they be uh, a model potentially for other countries? They do work well, but I mean... I can file a tax return online in the UK, you know, <laughs> it's like. <laughs> we can in the United States. So that's why we're so uh, in awe of it. But yeah. Uh-huh. I don't know. I feel like maybe it's a brand that they've really kind of grown into and they're very okay. good at massaging, but sure. Like there are some very kind of democratic things about it. Like the talent transit cards, for example, like all residents can basically use public trans- transit for free, which. I think it's admirable. And the yeah. Wi-Fi in public places is very, is very efficient. And I, I think part of the fact they're able to do that, I mean, it is a small country and they do have a small population and rolling out the initiatives that they have engaged with on like on an American scale is much more difficult. So we, we've, we've talked mainly about um, Estonia, but I kind of in the broadest sense, do you... What, what are your expectations for kind of the Baltic region, kind of all three countries? Do you see them kind of in a stagnation? Do you see them kind of being successful over the next 10 to 20 years? Do you expect them to become uh, more pro-European or do you expect them to kind of be subject to the throes of kind of the 
anti-European Union sentiment that we're seeing in a lot of Europe right now. Where do you kind of, where do you see, how do you see these three countries developing over the next 10 to 20 years? Very broad question. So just take it wherever you'd like. Well, it's just that with COVID and the coronavirus, like my answer maybe two months ago would be different from my answer now. (laughs) Do elaborate, please. I mean, I'd say two months ago, then there, there would still be kind of this move, this ongoing move to like towards a sense of isolationism perhaps and uh, skepticism towards um, the EU and the Baltics. Like that didn't seem to be lessening at all. But at the same time, the sentiment that the Baltics need to align with the West can be very, very, very strong too. So, I mean, we see it in Latvia, for example, even when Harmony Saskana is like garnering the most votes out of everybody else, like people who don't want Saskana to gain power do kind of band together against that. So there is this kind of unified sense amongst opposing parties, I suppose, in each country that like the most important thing is to stay aligned with the EU, to stay aligned with like NATO, to stay aligned with the powers that have helped them overcome the occupation in the past. Post-COVID, (laughs) <laughs> who knows <laughs> I mean who knows? Europe seems to you know there seems to be a greater sense of community I mean I even see it in London you know like yeah this is, existing <laughs> up down my street <laughs> like right no I know I, 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 I take I, I take your criticism that maybe the question isn't necessarily uh, apropos because this is the most difficult time to be making a 10 to 20 year <laughs> prediction when we're in the midst of such kind of uncertainty Right now, one thing I did want to return to is you meant you, you you mentioned kind of the uh, misogyny and kind of sexism um, in in Estonia. I, I do know that in Russia, the current or, or maybe previous prime minister of Estonia was a, a woman, correct? The current president is a woman. The current the current president, sorry. Yeah. And I did see that she has been the subject uh, in Russian media including through, you know, quote unquote, uh, humorous uh, shows on TV was the subject of very, very clearly kind of sexist uh, jokes. Um, One of them was, was basically saying that she was masculine and and hinting that, you know, questioning her, her, her gender identity or sexuality. Uh, I was wondering how, you know, if you if you have any insight as to how Estonian people feel, I mean, if they know that those jokes exist and how and whether or not they're they're offended by them. Uh, again, because of the language calcification, like I'm not sure that too many, at least in the young generations, too many Estonians kind of really consume Russian language media mm-hmm. to that to the degree they know. And, and, um, and it's not like there's an Estonian source who would kind of tell them, "Oh, look what Russian TV said about our president the other day." That's what I was about to add. However, like Estonian media does often translate. (laughs) So that can kind of, like, I suppose, amplify something Mm -hmm. that would otherwise be kind of a very small, like, offhand, petty comment. Right. And kind of almost makes the effect much, much larger than it should be, perhaps. In terms of the population itself, uh, I think there's been some kind of dissonance as well between, like, the far-right parties and the president of Estonia. So she acknowledges like their views and she doesn't seem to have too much time for them Uh and they've undermined her too so it's just more kind of generic societal misogyny 
do do you feel that the security threat to the Baltic states is going to necessarily change in any time in the near fu- future? Or do you feel that kind of the uh, geopolitical and um, I guess, yeah, I guess I just, I guess I should say the geopolitical situation in the Baltic states is going to necessarily change anytime soon. Again, like, are we taking, are we taking COVID into account here or not? (laughs) Please take, how is is Russia going to exploit COVID? Yeah, that's an interesting (laughs) question. Um, do, Do you think that there's a way Russia could exploit COVID in the Baltic states? I think there have been some attempts at spreading misinformation as a result okay. of it. I mean, it's it's opportunism, isn't it? You know, uh, like if it wasn't COVID, then would it be some other things instead? I think there's going to be a lot of continuity too, despite like the people we're seeing at the moment. Like Russia's going to keep wanting people who can spy on the ground in Estonia and mm-hmm. in Latvia and in Lithuania. They're going to keep mm-hmm. pushing their agenda in those countries and going, they're going to keep talking about like how about the importance of Russia's role in World War II and how they saved the countries or liberated the countries from the Nazis. You know, I think there's all going to be, there's going to be a lot of continuity there and we're not going to see any changes in that respect. Do you feel that there's any kind of generational difference between people who grew up in the Soviet Union and people who are, you know, much younger in, 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 in Estonia and in, in, in the Baltics? Are their political views or views towards Russia significantly different from their parents or not necessarily? Yeah, I think that they are. Like, There's much less of a kind of visceral response amongst the young generations. They don't seem to have quite the same awareness or relationship with the past that the older generations do. And even in like, I mean, if, for example, in Lithuanian media, I've seen some very critical articles about cafe that some, I guess you'd like traditionally call them Lithuanian hipsters set up in an old Soviet canteen and you know people like older generations have been quite critical about like the fact that they are utilizing the past without understanding what it means and how awful it is that they don't recognize the gravity of I don't know using like the the Soviet canteen for aesthetic reasons and yeah like the younger generation does seem to have this kind of fascination with the Soviet past that isn't connected to the trauma that the older generations connect it with and that's interesting. I wanted to ask about the state of kind of, I, I guess we could say friendship and solidarity between the Baltic states. I know that obviously as the Soviet Union uh, was collapsing, there was a f- very famous human chain uh, yeah. of people uh, uh, linking, I believe, all three countries. D- is is the state of the, the, the relationship between those three countries still as strong as ever? Or are there potential cracks that you see? I'm seeing people, I mean, one of the major cracks is the language abilities. So Estonians don't tend to learn Latvian or Lithuanian, and Lithuanians don't tend to learn Latvian or Estonian. You know, the languages are quite different, even if like there are some words that are mutually intelligible in Latvian and Lithuanian. Um, But with more people using English and with perhaps Russian too as a common language, then that, you know, there, there is some growing interest, I think, between the between all of the countries in one another, as opposed to like looking to Moscow or Berlin or London, there seems to be some kind of growing mutual interest. But there's also the kind of division, I suppose, within them. Like you see Estonia trying very much to identify itself as Scandinavian as opposed to like Baltic, I think in modern, in recent years. And that's interesting. That's kind of a fragmentation. But 
um, even like last last summer, I was doing residency in Ventspils in Western Latvia, and I saw like this group of young children from all over the Baltic states. They were like coming together on the anniversary of the Baltic Way, the human chain that you mentioned. And they were holding hands with each other. They were very young, but they were from like all three countries. They were part of a kind of, I think, bell guide or scout troop. They were all holding hands, all from different Baltic states in this strange coastal town. <laughs> and they very much like appreciated the importance of unity between the three. That's, that's fantastic. What are perceptions of the United States currently in the Baltic states? And is there kind of any particular opinion towards President Trump or or not necessarily? I haven't heard too many complimentary things about Trump in the Baltics <laughs> since he's been elected. Uh, again, this is strictly in like strictly in like passing conversations, but I'm not saying like there's what diplomats, for example, are saying. <laughs> I'm saying this is what just the general populace is saying. So mm-hmm. yeah, in the terms of the general populace, I haven't heard too many complimentary things about him, but I don't think it's necessarily affecting the view of America as a whole. Okay, that's interesting. So what 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 projects are you up to now? Your book just came out. Uh, what's mm-hmm. kind of your, what are you up to now? And kind of what's the next uh, project that's kind of uh, in your brain right now? At the moment, I'm finishing a travel guide um, for DK. So I need to get that in. And then back to the joyful freelancing life. And trying to write, trying to get articles published, you know, the usual fun. Um, wow. Should be even more fun during the uh-huh. coronavirus time. Do you, do you anticipate being mainly focused on um, the Baltics or a particular country in the Baltics or Russia? Or what's kind of your main, uh, or, or do you necessarily have a main focus? Or I guess as a freelancer, you need to always be open to whatever opportunity presents itself. Yeah, I mean, like since I've been back back in the UK, um, it's harder for me to write. I'm not like on the ground there. Yeah. So I've done some. Well, I've moved slightly, like sideways into a tech and culture and society. So I guess like the social implications of technology, maybe, mm-hmm. or historical wow. implications of technology, and that's kind of a nice sideways move because I can do that in the UK. Um, yeah, I, I would love to see something about that topic with and with 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 regards to the Baltic states, kind of the synergy. Yeah, exactly. And um, I, w- I mean, I maybe these these pieces always exist, but I would always love to see like the the Estonian e you know e government um, e efficiency you know uh, uh, facts and myths or something um, yeah. or, something, or something like that, or just kind of talking about the image because it became quite a big deal during I believe one presidential primary in 2016. Where one of the one of the one of the candidates, Jeb Bush, said yeah. you know said that in Estonia you can fill out your taxes in five minutes on the internet because they have a flat tax and because you know they have yeah. e government they have e government and since then that became and particularly during that presidential election cycle that became uh, kind of or no, was that 2016 or no, maybe it was 20 I can't 2016. even remember or 2016 or 2012 whichever one Jeb Bush was in. Um, oh no, that was 2016 for sure. Yeah. Uh, that, that became kind of, you know, a new kind of, uh, talking point amongst Republicans in the United States and Estonia was this really positive example for a while. So it just kind of an interesting point of of inquiry. Obviously I have my very kind of American, America centric bias when proposing that topic, but um, no, it's good for me to know, you know, I write for American publications too. Maybe it's something to chase up. Yeah. (laughs) 
Well, thank you so much for coming on today. Uh, it was a real treat to hear from you. And uh, we, we were just delighted to receive your email from uh, a listener. And I, I did want to ask, how did you hear, how did you hear about the Slavic connection? I think I was on Twitter. Um, I've got a few friends who are historians who like follow it. And, oh, wow. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, that's awesome. Thank yeah. Thank you for having me. <laughs> I'm sorry that some of my answers are a little bit fluffy, like because of the COVID panic. Like, no, no, no. It's no, it's I fine. I can't be certain of anything at the moment. <laughs> It's fine. No, we, this, this, this was delightful. And um, we'll, we'll, we'll cut this episode up and uh, get it out as soon as uh, our producer, Michelle, uh, sees fit. Obviously, we'll, we'll send it to you as soon as it's out. And uh, we'll include links to your, your website and uh, your, your book and, and things like that. And the book does truly sound fantastic. I already sent it to a com- couple people who are doing work on that topic. Uh, I have a friend who's writing his actually at our, you know, in our program, who's writing his master thesis on black, black people in the Baltic States, um, and kind of the history of, of, you know, include African-Americans, but also just, you know, from Africa, all black people in, in, in the Baltic States and, and also where they fit into this security question of can, you know, increasing migrants and, 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 and black people in the Baltics, are they going to be the subject of, uh, information campaigns on, on behalf of Russia, et cetera. So. Um, so very much in like the contemporary period, like yes, in the in the contemporary period, yeah. So not the history of it, but the contemporary history, yeah. Yeah, um, and the implications. Yeah, um, I hope this episode gets up soon. We haven't had an episode in in, in a while because of the virus, and we thought about doing a lot of yeah. these video ones, but uh, it's it's hard to organize and and, and so on. Well, thanks to Michelle as well. I know she's not here, but she'll probably hear it while cussing it up. So yeah. thank you, Michelle. <laughs> so yeah, please um, um, write, email if you have any questions. Thanks again uh, for joining us. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. I just want to make sure we save the recording. Michelle, did you get the recording? Okay, good. Okay, thank you. <laughs> okay, so if we leave that if we leave the meeting it won't, you know, somebody will have the recording for sure. We got it.